Have you ever emailed someone and later on began to second guess what you said in the email? Or you send a text message to someone and you began wondering if the person you sent it to would actually hear your heart behind the text message. Have you ever done that and then began to wonder how they would receive what you said? Would they be hurt? Would they be angry? Will this be the end of the relationship? And then what happens? All that wondering gets your stomach all in knots, right? Well, that happened to the Apostle Paul once. He fired off an email to the church in Corinth, and then he began to wonder how they would receive it. Actually, he sent his friend Titus with a letter. And after he sent Titus, Paul began to wonder, was I too harsh with them in my letter? Are they angry? Is this going to cause a church split? Will they hear my heart behind my letter? And all of these swirling thoughts and questions led Paul to panic a little. And he began chewing his fingernails and pacing the floor. And his stomach was all in knots. And it was stressing him out so much so he couldn't even do ministry. An opportunity came up for him to do a really great ministry. And he's like, I'm too overwhelmed. I can't do it right now. I'm sure none of you have ever been in a situation where you were stressed about a relationship and you started chewing your nails and pacing the floor and your stomach was all in knots. I'm sure this is just relegated to apostles in the first century, right? But it's not, is it? It's a timeless problem. But the good news is that God is not indifferent to us and the things that concern us and the things that weigh heavy on our hearts. He actually cares about those things. He cares about us. And he loves us so much that he responds when his children's stomachs are all in knots. And so what we're going to see today is that God loves to show his kindness for his kids through his kids. That's what we'll see in our text today. God's kindness in the form of encouragement and comfort moving from God to the Corinthian church to Titus all the way to the Apostle Paul whose stomach was all in knots. And so turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7, and we're going to see what happened to Paul that time his stomach was all in knots over an email that he sent to the Corinthians. So as you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, make a spot in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 12, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 7, verse 5. But first, let me explain the context a little bit before we read the passage. There was some guy in the Corinthian church who had been in some unrepentant sin. We don't know who it was. We don't know what the sin was. Some scholars think it is the man that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 who was involved in an inappropriate relationship. Maybe it was. I personally think it was a man who was publicly undermining Paul's ministry, undermining his apostleship, going around the church talking about him, We'll look more at this situation next week and how Paul responds. And so Paul sent this painful letter to the Corinthians. He talks about it, and we talked about it when we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
So after Paul wrote what we know as 1 Corinthians, and before he wrote 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote what he calls a painful letter to the Corinthian church. Now, we don't have any copies of this letter. And in this letter, he rebuked the church and was stern with them and told them, you need to deal with this man. Then he sent his good friend Titus to deliver this painful letter to this church. And then Paul had to wait and wait and wait. He didn't have email. He couldn't text Titus to see how the church responded to his letter. He couldn't call Titus after he checked into his hotel room to see how things were going. Paul just had to wait. And while he waited to hear from Titus, Paul started thinking, I wonder how they'll respond. Will my letter just cause even more division in the church? Maybe I shouldn't have sent that letter. Maybe I was too harsh. These are the thoughts that are going through Paul's mind as he waited for Titus to come back from Corinth with a report on the church. So 2 Corinthians, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 12, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 7, verse 5. Okay, so let's look at chapter 2, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12, not 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now turn over to chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So in chapter 2, Paul started to tell the Corinthians what his life was like as he waited to hear back from Titus. But Paul got distracted. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired squirrel. Paul gets distracted. He, he, and then he goes off on this theological gold mine in between chapter 2 and chapter 7. And we have benefited greatly from this squirrel moment of Paul's. Because the Holy Spirit has inspired him to take this long detour from chapter 2 to chapter 7 where what he says in between is some of the most profound things that we have in Scripture. But then Paul picks the story up again in chapter 7. Now, notice in chapter 2, Paul says that he had no rest for his spirit. And then in chapter 7, he says, I had no rest in my body. In other words, he was completely wiped out, body and soul. He's stressed, he's exhausted, he's worried, he's concerned, he's depleted. He had a door open up for him for the gospel when he was in Troas, but he was so concerned about the Corinthian church that he took off for Macedonia, hoping to find his friend Titus. And when he arrived in Macedonia, he tells us everywhere he turned, 
there was affliction. And so ministry in Macedonia for Paul could be boiled down to what he says here, fighting without and fears within, body and soul taking a toll. And yet, right in the middle of all this drama and this affliction and this suffering and this anxiety and all of these pressures, God sends Titus to recalibrate Paul's heart. We see that in verse 6. Look, look again. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. How kind of Jesus to send people to comfort us when we're down. When our stomach is all in knots and we're feeling a little bit of the blues and the blahs, God sends people to comfort us. What miserable people we would be if God did not send people to us to comfort us when we were downcast. But did you catch those two words there? But God. Those are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But God. That means that no matter what you are going through in your life, there is always a but God that is coming your way. God has a way of coming in on his own timing, and that's key, on his own timing to reassure and to comfort our hearts when we are downcast. And the context here is suffering, right? That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is suffering, and God comes to him, not in some mountaintop experience, right? God comes to Paul in the everyday stuff of life and ministry, where Paul lives where we all live. He comes to him in the hard stuff of life. And so that means that the pain and the suffering that you are experiencing in your life and the weakness that it reduces you to, that is the very place where God meets you to comfort you. That's the place where his grace meets you. His grace does not meet you in your self-sufficiency. In fact, grace is opposed to self-sufficiency. Grace is allergic to self-sufficiency. Grace is nauseated by pride and self-sufficiency. Grace comes to meet you not in your self-sufficiency, but in your weakness in your fighting without and fears within, in your, I just don't think I can go on. That's where God's grace meets you. That means that weakness is our home base, right? It's the platform in which we experience everything else in this life. Weakness and affliction and suffering and stomach in knots and feeling the blahs and the blues, smack dab in the middle of, I don't think I can go on another day. That is exactly where we receive, great, we receive grace and power and encouragement and comfort. So don't run from this because this is the place where Jesus meets you. The language of suffering and affliction is where Paul does his theology. It's where he does his theology best. In those places that none of us want to go. Those places that none of us want to experience. We want to experience God on the mountaintop. 
We don't want to experience him in the valley. So it's true for us too. It's the context in which Paul writes this, but God, it's affliction and suffering. So if what you're experiencing right now sounds a lot like what Paul was experiencing, tribulations and trials and pressures and hardships and troubles and persecutions and sufferings and distresses and anxieties, if that describes your life right now, then take heart and cheer up. If you read what Paul was going through and you can look at Paul and say, I feel you, bro. Knuckles. If you can do that, if that's you, then know that at some point in God's timing, there is a but God coming your way. Don't let the context of suffering trick you. That's what the super apostles were saying. They're saying if if Paul's a real apostle, he would not be suffering like this. The fact that he is suffering means that he's not the real deal. And Paul is writing to say, you know what? This is normal Christianity. This is normal discipleship, suffering, hardship. It's not that all the time, but it is the norm. What did Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, take up your recliner. Take up your floating chair in the pool that holds a slushy drink. He said, take up your cross and follow me because suffering precedes glory. And so if you can resonate with Paul here, hang in there and hang on to God's promises. There's a but God coming your way to help recalibrate your heart in the middle of all of your troubles. And one day you will be able to say along with Paul something like, I was so stressed out, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I didn't see how any of what I was going through then could end up being some kind of Romans 28 good, but God. Or you may say, I was so hopeless and down in the dumps and I could barely get out of bed and I don't think I'd make it another day, but God. Or I was so overwhelmed. There was so much to do. I felt paralyzed, but God. There is a but God coming your way someday in God's timing, probably through someone you know to help recalibrate your heart in the middle of all of your tribulations, trials, pressures, hardships, troubles, persecutions, sufferings, distresses, and anxieties. How do I know this? Because I went to seminary? No. I learned it in seminary, though. (laughs) I'll tell you that. How do I know this? Because I have experienced this throughout my entire life. And Christian, I'm willing to bet you've experienced this too. I've experienced this in my life. I could fill books with all of the but gods I've enjoyed in my life. The but gods that I thought would never come. And God in his grace held me up for one more day, one more moment. And two, I know this because this is who our God is. God's word tells me. Earlier, Paul described God as the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions. This is what God does. He doesn't sit back with a magic eight ball and say, should I comfort my child in suffering right now? Let's see. Mm, 
try again, shake it, save it for another day. No, this is what he does. He comforts us in all our affliction. This is who our God is. This is his job description. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, stress, drama, sorrow, pain, trials, troubles, etc. He loves to comfort his children. I think so many people think God loves just making us miserable. Like, hmm, Jesus how can we make them miserable today? Here's what I thought of, let me tell you. We're just going to make their life miserable. Oh, look at it. That's not him at all. If that's your view of God, you have a faulty understanding of who God is. He is the God of all comfort, not the God of, I woke up today wanting to make my children miserable. That's not him. He loves to comfort his children. And the word translated here as comfort um, means to come alongside. Sometimes it's translated as encouragement in the scriptures. It means to cheer up or to console or to speak in a friendly manner. In fact, it's the word that Jesus himself uses to describe the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus uses the noun form of this word. Parakletos, to describe the Holy Spirit. In John 14, he said he was returning to the Father, but that he would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. That's the same word here as comfort, the, the noun form. This is what the Holy Spirit does for God's children. He helps us. And boy, do we need help all the time. And the simplest prayer that you can pray is, help me, Holy Spirit. I pray that prayer. That's probably the prayer I pray the most. I'm hoping if I'm ever in a hospital and I'm knocked out, that the only thing that comes out of my mouth is, help me, Holy Spirit. Like, what's he saying? Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Holy Spirit. So simple. You can teach it to your kids, even when they're really little. Help me, Holy Spirit. And then you can pray it all the time. And when you pray that, you are not going against the desires of the Holy Spirit. It's not like when you pray, help me, Holy Spirit, he's like, oh, I really wasn't planning. got something else I was planning on doing, but I guess I'll help you this time. But man, I got something, I gotta be somewhere. You're not going against the desires of the Holy Spirit when you ask him to help you. You're asking him to do his job description. You are asking him to do what he loves to do. And so understand this, Grace. The Spirit of God helps us and he comforts us and he encourages us in a myriad of ways. He uses the ordinary means of grace. What do we mean by that? Theologians talk about the ordinary means of grace. We're talking about the preaching of God's word. We're talking about the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate today. We're talking about baptism, and we're talking about prayer. Those are the very ordinary means of grace. Preaching of God's word, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and prayer. That's the way, the normal way that the Holy Spirit helps us. But the Spirit also uses friends like Titus, and books, and phone calls, and text messages, and blog posts, and Instagram stories. 
He uses whatever it takes to bring you comfort and encouragement because he's committed to your comfort. The Holy Spirit is committed to your encouragement. Believe that today. This is what the Holy Spirit does. His to-do list is comfort, comfort, comfort. And he is ready to persuade you of God's love today. That God loves you, the real you. The you that you know, that you wish and pray that nobody else ever really knows and discovers. He loves that you. Not the Instagram you. Okay? You can filter yourself up all you want on Instagram. Okay? Jesus like, I see that. Okay, I'll heart it. But I love the real you. And he longs to comfort the real you and encourage the real you and tell the real you that your Father in heaven loves you and delights in you and is well pleased with you and has thoughts of tenderness and kindness towards you. And he wants you to feel it and sense it overwhelmingly. Feel it in your bones. Feel it in your gut. Holy Spirit is actually cheering you on today. I just love the Holy Spirit. I don't know where I would be without Him. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He comforts, He helps, He encourages, He consoles, He cheers God's children on, and He cheers them up, and He does all of that helping for the downcast. Paul tells us in verse 6, The Greek word that gets translated here as downcast, typically in the New Testament, gets translated as humble. The idea here is one of destitution or being knocked down to the ground by life. Now, what's really interesting is that this is the same word used in Matthew 11 where Jesus tells us that he is gentle and lowly. We'll come back later to talk about how Jesus uses the word lowly that Paul uses here to describe himself. And so God comforts the downcast and the destitute and those who feel like they've been knocked down by life. And he comes alongside and consoles and encourages and strengthens and refreshes. He is the God of all comfort who comforts the downcast. He is the God of all Come alongside you and refresh you. The God of all, I'm with you, right beside you, holding your hand with my arm around you, helping you, encouraging you. In other words, he's cheering you on. And don't we all need that? I mean, that's pretty amazing. Picture, that's what the word parakletos means, to come alongside and encourage and and cheer on. So picture God the Father on the sidelines of your life, running up and down, cheering you on and encouraging you. Picture him, infinitely glorious, yes, full of majesty, power, omnipotent, eternal, triune God, just incredible, right? Holy. Picture him running up and down on the sidelines of your life, cheering you on and saying, you can do it, buddy. Picture the infinitely glorious God saying, you can do it, buddy. Right? How do we tend to picture him? You can do it, buddy. He's a father saying, you can do it, buddy. 
I'm with you. Don't be discouraged. Lift your head high. Don't fear. I'm with you. What a picture of God cheering his kids on and saying, y'all can do it. I'm with you. The infinitely glorious, majestic, all-knowing, all-powerful God am with you. That's the kind of encouragement that God gives. Listen, God loves to cheer his kids on. He loves to encourage us through the preaching of his word, through the Lord's Supper, through baptism, through prayer, and God loves to show his kindness for his kids through his kids. God loves to use his own kids to encourage his kids. And Paul experienced that firsthand from his friend Titus. Look at verse 6 again. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. And so Paul and Titus finally met up at the Starbucks in Macedonia, and Titus had some good news for Paul. The Corinthians received your letter with open arms. They're not mad at you for your painful letter. They miss you. You're the guy who planted their church. You're their first pastor. They love you. And as we'll see next week, they responded appropriately to this letter. There was gospel repentance. And all of this, Paul says, brought joy and encouragement and comfort to him. This whole situation is proof that God loves to show his kindness for his kids through his kids. The Corinthians encouraged Titus. They refreshed his spirit. And Titus took all of that comfort and encouragement and refreshment and he passed it on to his good buddy, the Apostle Paul, and all of the other ministry friends who were with him. This is a picture of what a church family should be like. I really love what Ray Ortland says about the ministry of encouragement spreading like wildfire in a church family. He says this, I have never met anyone suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. Have you? Our biblical authenticity is at stake here, whether we are overflowingly encouraging to one another. Encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. The ministry of encouragement, therefore, isn't optional or just for people with a knack for it. Real encouragement has authority over us all. It deserves nothing less than to set the predominant tone of our churches, our homes, our ministries. So let's think it through and then... Let's get after it. The one thing gospel encouragement isn't is average, mediocre, ignorable. The ministry of encouragement is surprising, captivating, energizing. It does require effort and intentionality, but it also leaves us feeling exhilarated and uplifted. Is that how we walk out of our churches on a typical Sunday? Exhilarated and uplifted? When the ministry of encouragement is allowed its actual authority and it takes over and sets the tone in a community, that is how people do walk out of church. They leave thinking, 
man alive. I needed that. It makes me want to live for Christ this week. And I can't wait for next Sunday. And the word for that is revival. Isn't that good? Encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. Wow, I love that picture. And if that's true, then let's think it through and then let's get after it. And then you know what awaits us? Revival. Imagine that. Who wants to see revival here in our church? Who wants to see revival come to the Central Coast? Perhaps the Spirit would start ushering in seasons of revival if we simply started encouraging one another. Hmm. That's something to think about. And then to get after. We want to be a church where encouragement is the norm, where it's part of our DNA, where people feel it and sense it often. And I'm telling you today, I need, I need to do this more. I need help. So pray for me. Maybe you need help too. But I need to be more encouraging. And this place here is where God designed you primarily to get your encouragement. Here at Grace. So get involved and meet people. Listen, if you're watching on the live stream and you haven't been back, let me encourage you to come back. You need people here to encourage you, and you need to come here so that you can encourage other people. Come and serve. You need the comfort and encouragement of of God that comes not just on Sunday through His Word, but also through His people. I love what Sam Crabtree says about affirming and encouraging Uh, In his book, Practicing Affirmation, it's a great book. He says, if it helps you, think of it this way. Geese honk encouragement and fly in formation. Skunks travel alone. We want to be a a church of geese honking encouragement to one another. Whatever, however geese. I don't do a good uh, goose, I guess. Honking encouragement one to another, and flying in formation, flying in gospel formation. We do not want to be a church of skunks, loner skunks. So let me encourage you today. If you've been living like a skunk, alone, isolated, then get involved here. Be a part. Just show up. Show up and say, I'm socially awkward, but I'm just showing up because the pastor said I should. Or show up and say, I'm an introvert. Uh, This is killing me right now to show up. Just show up. I don't have to tell the extroverts to show up. You guys will show up no matter what. Us introverts have to like work. Like, I saw a meme this week of like, it said introverts getting ready to uh, go to a meeting or meet with people. And I had all these four pictures of Rocky Balboa from Rocky working out and doing all this. That's what we introverts have to do. We have to work all of this energy up just to come and say, hi. And then we're like, we're drained. (laughs) You extroverts show up and, and man, you're just, you're on fire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just show up. And the Holy Spirit will meet you here through other people. That's the way he designed it. And then you can take the encouragement and comfort that you receive and then pass it on to other people. And I think we do do this well 
here at Grace. God has been kind to us in this regard here at Grace. I think we are a church of encouragers. I think we really care for one another. I think we really do come alongside one another. But let's keep at it. And let's continue to come alongside one another when our stomachs are in knots. And let's cheer one another on. And here's the thing about encouragement. You can never be too encouraged, can you? Even an introvert can never be too encouraged. Okay? You will never reach a place where you're like, no, I'm good, really. I've been encouraged so much lately that I need you, I actually need you to take back that encouraging word. Can you do that? I've got no more room for encouragement in my heart. So please, for the love of God, take back that encouraging word. Don't send that uplifting email. Quit texting me comforting words. Jeesh, buddy, stop encouraging me, okay? Nobody is like that. We can never be too encouraged. God never sets a limit on encouragement in the Bible. Isn't that great? God sets a limit on all kinds of things. Can't worship me this way, only one spouse, all these different things. But on encouragement, God says, you guys just go for it. Knock yourself out. Why does he do that? Because God knows that encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. And Paul felt the gospel as it moved to him from his good friend Titus. It's a reminder again to us that God loves to show his kindness for his kids through his kids. So let's think that through and then let's get after it. Who can you encourage this week? You know what? Maybe you could go out on the wall in the middle of the foyer there and our, our missionaries are all there. Maybe you could just pick one out and think, you know what, I'm going to send them an email. I'm going to send them a card. I'm going to find them on Facebook and send them a message. I just want to encourage them. Let's encourage all of our missionaries this week because I'm pretty sure they probably feel like Paul a lot of times, downcast, fighting without, fears within. Just go to that wall right back over there say, Holy Spirit, lead me. Who should I send an encouraging email or text or message to? Or maybe you're here today and you feel downcast. Maybe you feel destitute and knocked down by life. Maybe you are suffering a serious case of the blahs and the blues. Maybe your stomach is in knots today. As I mentioned earlier, the word downcast that Paul uses here in verse 6 is the same word used in Matthew 11 where Jesus himself tells us what he is like. He says, I am gentle and lowly. That's the same word that Paul uses here. But when Jesus says that he is lowly, he doesn't mean that he himself is downcast or that he is somehow destitute or that he has somehow, somehow been knocked down by life. What he means is that he is humble. That even though he is infinitely glorious and majestic and high and lifted up and holy, yet he still gets down on the ground to help those who are downcast. And he doesn't send somebody else to do it. He doesn't send an angel. He comes 
He humbles himself and he gets down low to help those who have been knocked down by life. Jesus doesn't sit on a throne and say, I'm just too high and lifted up to get down and help you. No, he himself comes to the downcast to lift them up. In other words, he gets down on his hands and knees to help us up. And isn't that what you're looking for in a Savior? Isn't that what you're looking for in God? Someone who doesn't ask you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but someone who comes and lifts you up and carries you in his arms close to his chest, close to his heart. That's who Jesus is. Let's close with some words from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Describing Jesus, he says this, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is gift, not transaction. So whether you are actively working hard to crowbar crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own. Gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we were asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. So let me ask you this morning, are you downcast? Do you long for rest? Would you like to come in out of the storm? All you have to do is come. You come with the empty hands of faith. You come with your mess. You come with your fears. You come with your baggage. You come with your sin. You come with your stomach all in knots. And you will find a Savior who really is meek, who really is humble, who really is tender, who really is open and welcoming and accommodating and understanding and willing. 
Savior who really is gentle and lowly. God loves to show his kindness for his kids through his kids. And God showed his kindness for his elect kids by sending a kid, if you will, his own son, to die for us. God showed his kindness for his children by sending his one and only son. And that's what we're going to celebrate at the table today. God's kindness for his kids through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are gentle and lowly and that you came for broken sinners. And so we come to you this morning not with our own righteousness. We come with the empty hands of faith and say, I have nothing but you. And we bring our baggage and we bring our mess and we bring our sin this morning, Lord. And we ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us and to wash us. But we come to this table because you have invited us here today. You have a place at this table with our name on it. And you want us to come and eat and drink and enjoy you and to enjoy our forgiveness. We come today, Lord, knowing that your Holy Spirit, by his power, is going to strengthen us by his grace. In your name we pray.